Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Kai Singh, and I will be your MC today. Welcome to day two of the Singapore Perspectives Conference 2022, organized by the Institute of Policy Studies. The title of today's keynote speech is Cities, Countries, and Resilience. Before I begin, here are a few administrative announcements. For the question and answer sessions, please submit your questions on the online platform. You can do this at any time during the event. Kindly raise your questions in a constructive and respectful manner. We will be posting highlights of our discussions today on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. If you are doing the same on your social media accounts, please use our conference, hash conference hashtag SP2022City. Today's program will begin with the keynote speech by Mr. Ong Yi Kang, Minister for Health. The subsequent Q&A session will be moderated by Dr. Wu Junjie, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. We hope you will enjoy the program. May I now invite Mr. Ong Yi Kang, Minister for Health, to deliver his speech. Minister, please. Friends, ladies and gentlemen, mostly online, thank you for inviting me to this year's Singapore Perspectives to speak on the important topic of cities. There are so many dimensions to cities. They are full of promise and potential. They are where rural populations migrate to in search of a better life. They are the nerve centers of industries and economies, ideas and culture. They are magnets for humanity and cauldrons for new ideas and social movements. They are where hopes and dreams are expressed and filled and fulfilled. But there is a dark side to cities too. Cities can also breed crime, vice, social inequality, disease and cause environmental degradation. So cities are filled with paradoxes. Along with triumphs, there are defeats. Where there is hope and optimism, there is also despair. They have been the central stage where the story of humanity has unfurled, reflecting how societies think, behave, and point their moral compasses. Today, I will start by recounting the stories of a few great cities, past and present. I will then draw out key lessons from these cities, talk about their implications for Singapore, both our present as well as our future. My first example is Jericho, in the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East. It was one of the oldest human settlements dating back 9000 BC, an old city born of geographical advantage combination of good climate, fertile soil, abundance of fresh water. These conditions, these conditions enabled hunter-gatherers to settle over time and they cultivated crops. These were a close-knit people from a very early civilization. As their numbers grew, a city is formed. And then with accumulated wealth from agriculture, the people of Jericho established the city as a trading station, leveraging their 
strategic location along the Jordan River, and they were trading with peoples as far out as Egypt and Anatolia. With wealth came the need to defend the wealth and to protect the wealth. Inhabitants built up fortifications, most famously the walls of Jericho. And defense has always been a public good, so you want to defend a city, it has to raise taxes, mobilize and organize resources. And therefore you see the emergence of a state administration. And that leads me to my second set of examples of great cities, political capitals, such as Rome, Chang'an, Constantinople, Kaifeng, Pataliputra. These two began as well-located settlements, but they gained strategic significance as their rulers consolidated territories around them, and eventually they became the full-fledged political and economic capitals of empires. These capitals, they had a few common features. First, they were often situated at the confluence of trade routes. Kaifeng, for example, was located amidst a network of canals and handled huge volumes of trading cargo. Trade was often state-sponsored and driven to provide the resources to sustain the empires. Two, these capitals had defensive advantages. For example, Constantinople guarded the only inlet to the Black Sea and surrounded by water on three sides, and this left it open to only land invasions from the west. But I think the Ottomans attacked them from the sea in the end. Three, they were the seats of great powers and developed significant military and technocratic powers as capitals of empires. For example, Rome had a governing state and an established code of law, which still forms the foundations of many modern legal and democratic systems today. The third set of examples are the present-day metropolises, New York City, Shanghai, Paris, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore. With industry revolution and technological advancement came the free flow of capital, and the world became increasingly globalized. And the globalized world is characterized by complex networks of trade, financial services, maritime, aviation, infocoms, and other activities. And then these networks in turn need to be served by nodes or exchanges. And global metropolises that I listed managed to establish themselves as these nodes in a global economy. With technology, the influence span of a modern metropolis is no longer limited by the stamina of a horse, nor by the proximity to waterways and canals. Their significance is determined by the breadth of their networks, strategic clustering of industries, rich flows of capital and ideas, and most importantly, their ability to attract and retain talent from all over the world. Hence, London no longer depends on the Thames because it is not no longer tethered to its maritime route, routes. 
its transformation into a global financial center and a hub of creativity, culture, and the arts has allowed it to keep its position in the world. On the other side of the world, Silicon Valley and its smallest cities like Palo Alto, Cupertino, the startup and technological capital of the world, they have overtaken the coastal city of San Francisco. The idea of cities has therefore evolved from gatherings of close-knit people who settled where climatic and geographical conditions are most benign, to political and economic centers from which nations and empires were ruled and defended, to now, finally, financial and commercial hubs in a globalized and interconnected world. However they come to be, cities rise and fall with the tide of history. The same geographical luck which gave rise to ancient cities such as Jericho can also be their undoing. Natural disasters, climate change, foreign invasions can all turn a city's fate. Today, Jericho is a pale shadow of its former self as part of a disputed territory in the West Bank. As for political capitals such as Rome or Chang'an, now called Xi'an, their character and significance shifted along with the rise and fall of their parent empires. Rome was the Roman Empire, rather, was plagued by constant threats of invasion, and its military and administration were overextended to defend a massive territory. There was an erosion of civic trust in the ruling elite. Chang'an was decimated at the fall of the Tang Dynasty as the empire fragmented. These cities did not decline exactly. They remained major population centers, but their character has totally changed. Rome is still the capital of Italy, but the commercial center has since moved to Milan. Rome literally has layers of history buried below its surface. It makes it very hard for the city to redevelop and reinvent itself. As for the great modern metropolises, we can't take for granted we will always be there. We are constantly jostling for relevance in a hyper-competitive global economy. If a global node can be established, it can also be unplugged by a competitor. Maintaining the vibrance and relevance of a city over generations is therefore no mean feat. I cite these examples because I think there are lessons in each one that can enrich our collective endeavor to keep Singapore a thriving city at the cutting edge, as well as a stable and sustainable home for all of us. Singapore cannot be modeled against any of the examples I raised, and not even the modern metropolises. This is because history has made us unique. We are a city, we are a state, we are also a nation of one people, all rolled into one. In Singapore, we find some of the essence of New York City, of Chang'an, and also of Jericho. Our future success depends on us recognizing the importance and combining the essence 
of all three great cities, past and present. Let me start by talking about the New York City in us. We are a global economic node. And this is central to our survival as a city, the way we earn a living. Because without economic opportunities and the prospect of a better future for our people, a city loses its dynamism and its life. Especially for a city like Singapore, without a natural hinterland, maintaining our economic viability has always meant being connected to the world. One of our pioneer leaders, Mr. S. Rajaratnam, set out our ambition to become a global city in a speech to the Press Club, 1972. A whole, new, a whole two decades before our next speaker, Professor Sasson, would popularize the term. Mr. Rajaratnam saw Singapore as a growingly important component of the global economic system side by side with the economic giants of the world. In large part, we achieved this ambition through decades of hard work and enterprise. We leveraged our geographical location, we built a trading hub first, and from there, other strategic industries, manufacturing, tourism, biomedical, finance, infocoms, aviation, R&D, and so on. To use a more contemporary analogy, we have become like a smartphone with a good operating system and all kinds of apps in it. Your contacts, your schedule, your group chats, music, photos, all personalized and stored in here. So this is the value proposition we want to keep offering to the world. Strong enough so that it is not easy though not impossible, to switch out of Singapore. The great task before us is to keep reinventing ourselves to stay relevant and competitive. We have made good progress as a smart nation. We are fast becoming a centre for green finance in the world. We have long-term plans to reinvent our cityscape, such as developing the land to be vacated by the Paralebar Air Base, and reimagining our city centre with the inclusion of the greater southern waterfront, which is the size of three marina bays. And the city centre will look entirely different decades from now. But I believe the biggest opportunity for reinvention lies in the post-COVID-19 world. In many ways, the crisis is like a, a reset button forcing us to rethink the way we do things, to be better, to be smarter. For example, the post-COVID working world should embrace a combination of working in office and at home as a more efficient arrangement to be outcome-focused and help people juggle their lives. We should rethink about the concept of peak commuting hours which has so long dictated the planning and development of transport infrastructure. Uh, we can flatten that traffic curve too. COVID-19 has pushed many hard-hit brick-and-mortar establishments onto digital platforms. And having gone through home-based learning, education is undergoing another renaissance. Kicked off with every secondary school kid, equipped 
with a personal device, embracing the digital medium for education, and encouraging self-directed learning. And in healthcare, we now have a much better appreciation of the importance of primary care, which includes things like good hygiene, vaccinations, and home recovery with the help and support of telemedicine. This may be a new beginning for primary preventive care, which will be actually the most important component in a rapidly aging country. Through the pandemic, we have also positioned ourselves as a hub for vaccine manufacture and distribution. And the process of coping with the pandemic has tested our mettle as a city. We had to roll with the punches and adapt to all kinds of twists and turns. We didn't try to shut down every infection cluster, but we tried to brave through and ride the infection wave. And to do this, we have had to rely on people's personal responsibility and civic consciousness. We have to trust that people will do the right thing in testing themselves and isolating themselves if they are positive, tested positive. While all these have been done out of necessity, I believe it has helped us grow as a people. I hope it is the start of a societal attitude that is more forgiving of imperfections, embracing setbacks and failures, appreciating resilience, ruggedness, enterprise, and even being unconventional. There is also a Chang'an in us, even though we are no empire. This is because we need to run an effective state. In Singapore, our people do not have a choice between a freewheeling urban economic center or a quiet life in the suburbs. There is also no equivalent of a Washington DC, a Canberra, an Ottawa or Brasilia outside of global city. This city is all we got. Within these 730 square kilometers lie all the possible choices for 5 million people. The government of Singapore therefore must defend our city, maintain law and order, must ensure all our infrastructure and services from healthcare, education and transport to utilities and refuse collection, libraries and parks, they are all well provided for and working well. What Singapore has been blessed with is a founding generation that has built up a good government with a capital G. This includes the various arms of the state, an executive branch that is effective and can get things done, a non-politicized civil service, and a judicial system that upholds the rule of law without fear or favor. It also includes democratic institutions such as parliament formed through free and fair elections. But the affairs of the state cannot run away from politics, and therein lies a duality. On the one hand, politics facilitates public discourse, put the fate of the country ultimately in the hands of the people, keeps powers in check, and maintains accountability of the executive branch. On the other hand, politics gone wrong can polarize the population and destabilize societies. And we have seen many recent examples. So a critical factor for good governance 
is to get politics right. Rather than endless bickering and stalemates, the political process must be constructive and help bridge divides. The objective of politics must be to help the country find a way forward, even if the decisions involve very difficult trade-offs. And this is especially important to Singapore. For what we lack in resources and strategic mass, we can make up with nimbleness and unity of purpose and action. We may be small, but we can be fast, and we do things together. What are the starkest political differences that need to be reconciled today? Post-Industrial Revolution, throughout 19th and 20th centuries, the biggest conflict has been between the right and the left. Creation versus distribution of wealth, socialism versus capitalism. And that was the defining divide that characterized the political struggles of almost every country, an ideological struggle that defined modern history. However, post-globalization and the internet, modern societies face new contradictions. Economic and income growth are important, desired by many, but also stratify society and can hinder social mobility. The challenges and stresses of international competition can make people turn against globalization and foreigners. Resource exploitation depletes the life of our planet. In other words, inequality, protectionism, protectionism, and climate change. These are some of the biggest issues that nations and their governments across the world have to grapple with today. To reconcile the dilemmas of modern societies and deal with these issues, we actually need a strong state. Otherwise, it will not be possible to do difficult but necessary things, such as carbon tax to reduce emission, or redistributive policies to help the low income, move up especially, or reform education, health, or other significant public policies and programs. Our policies need to be consistent for the long term in order to make an impact and make a change, improve lives. Unlike bigger countries, Singapore cannot afford to be caught in fractious politics with frequent change of governments and reorientation of policies that come with it. This does not preclude the value of healthy discourse that take in diverse views and the proper functioning of checks and balances, both of which can strengthen our health and functioning as a state. The success of Singapore's state depends on our ability to achieve both aims. But the most crucial aspect of Singapore is the Jericho in us. The sense that despite being in a global city, we are members of a close-knit tribe, sharing a common fate and destiny. A recognition that by working together and making sacrifices for one another, we have a better shot at a brighter future. Except unlike the inhabitants of Jericho, we are not a natural tribe of similar origins. Singapore is a far more diverse and complex city than any ancient city. Having a seat at the table 
at the United Nations or a flag to compete under in the Olympics does not a nation make. The litmus test of what it means to be a nation is actually in our pledge, one united people. This makes nation building a long-term subconscious process. A nation's people will have to have common experiences and go through trials and tribulations together. Over time, that togetherness, togetherness will forge common ideals that transcend primordial tribal instincts and overcome forces that deepen social fault lines. Then something mysterious can emerge beyond security, beyond making a living, beyond creatures, creature comforts, like soul of a nation. For ancient civilizations like China and India, the sense of nationhood is almost second nature, having been born of millennia in time. In Europe, religious beliefs played a big part in forging that sense of togetherness also over centuries. The United States of America, that's a relatively young country, held together by the ideals of individual freedom and liberty. In Singapore, we are working on what it means to be Singaporean, day by day. Students singing Majula Singapura daily at school assemblies, different communities living side by side in HDB estates, visiting hawker centres, public parks together, cohorts of youngsters performing national service together, Total strangers instinctively connecting with a sing singlish phrase, even thousands of miles away from home, like our secret shared code. And battling crises like COVID-19 and pandemic together. And these are all acts of nation building. Many of these come through deliberate policies and programs implemented by the state take our bicentennial commemoration in 2019, for instance. We wanted to figure out what best describes the Singapore DNA. So after consulting widely, we shortlisted three descriptors, openness, multiculturalism, and self-determination. At the end of the exhibition at Fort Canning, members of the public were asked to vote for the descriptor that resonated with them the most. I did too. And by a wide margin, we chose self-determination. It is not surprising. Cities don't need it. Many states don't even think about it. But a young nation like us dreams of and cherish self-determination. It was a pity COVID-19 disrupted the process and we could not take the exhibition further. But we should think of other ways to do so. Because there is a growing consciousness about why we exist as Singapore and what makes us Singaporean. And to put that consciousness into words, it is perhaps this. That we are not just a keynote of the globalised world, but one that connects the East and West and different parts of Asia creating vast opportunities that surpass the limits of our borders for our people and our future generations. That the consistent strengths 
of the institutions of state will always strive to ensure justice and fairness to all, uphold meritocracy, bring out the best of people, bridge our divides and put us on the right path for the long term. That therefore in this nation, there is a solemn commitment to give every community that calls Singapore home a place under the sun, where everyone also exercises a spirit of give and take rather than pushing their own agendas at the expense of others. And in so doing, provide space for something we collectively own as Singaporeans to evolve over time. And with all this, we will determine our own future and be a city, state and nation that continue to thrive for many years to come. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. May I now invite Minister and Dr Wu to take their seats on stage. We will now start the Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you, Minister, for a very wide-ranging and very deep speech. And it has really given us a lot of food for thought, a lot to chew on. And as the questions are coming in, I thought I would just pose the first quick question. Well, given that cities are highly connected to the world, they necessarily have to be, but they are also highly vulnerable to global threats and risk. So being um, uh, densely populated, we have seen COVID affect many of the global cities of the world. Being enmeshed in the global economy, many cities were affected by the financial crisis. So moving forward, having taken lessons from these crises, how do you think global cities will look like in a post-COVID and also post-financial crisis world? What are the characteristics of cities that has allowed us to rebound each time from, from these uh, crises, specifically for Singapore? Mm. Thank you for that. I, I, sh I should first say that one thing I learned that whatever dialogue I go to now, whatever the topic, the questions are always about COVID. So I'll, I'll be happy to answer COVID-related questions. Um, your, your question triggered a few thoughts. And, and it's this. As I mentioned, Singapore is all we got. So we don't have that strategic buffer to cushion ourselves against external shocks. In a globalized world, there are always external shocks. It's got nothing to do with whether we are in Asia or we are Singapore. It's just so many things are connected, so something happens somewhere, be it 9-11, be it a pandemic, financial crisis, it affects every city in the world. Yeah, but if you're a bigger country, you have some buffer yeah, to take the pain. And if one industry collapses, you have some other city with another industry. Right? But Singapore is all we got, and that always makes us more vulnerable. Yeah. And that includes uh, natural disaster. One earthquake, one tsunami can inflict great pain on one city, but another can take its place. We don't have that choice. Yeah. Um, second, so we don't have redundancy in that sense. But on the other hand, it still makes us in a much better position to be a global city with a confluence of different strategic industry. Imagine if we are not, and we are a maritime city as we were for many years, and this is all we got, and any disruption to trade, and I think that's 
then we are severely affected. It's back to 1968 when uh, the Sambaong naval base, is, which is in my constituency, accounts for 20% of our GDP, and when the British pull out, it's a major shock to the system. But when you have diverse industries, each one can be subject to different shocks, so we can get bad news all the time, but the collection of bad news with, together with the juxtaposition of all those strategic industries give us that strategic buffer without the landmass. And that is really, I think, what Mr. Rajaratnam was talking about in 1972, and that ambition has, has to a great extent been fulfilled. Of course, you raised the very important question that now we found another major threat that can destabilize cities and businesses and lives, and that is pandemics. Um, COVID-19, SARS, we knew it, was, it would not be the last. And so we have COVID-19, and neither will this be the last. And so to run the city, you, cities won't dissolve just because of the pandemic. I think the basic, in, the, the basic desire and aspirations of people is still to gush towards cities, where they see that's where that's where opportunities are. That's where they can build a better life for themselves and their children, and people will still go there. Um, but against those natural instincts of human, we now need to also make sure that it is a safe place for people to gather. So city is formed because we keep getting better at sustaining dense population. Yeah, first through the production of food, then in the way we organize industries, but most importantly, the way we organize governance and state. That is the basic, if I may say, technological breakthrough that allow different kinds of people to live together because there's this superstructure called a state that maintain law and order, social harmony, and there are rules of uh, engagement and democratic institutions. And that was the great innovation of humankind. Now we layer upon it. It's not new to humans that we have overcome such challenges over and over. Now we layer upon it the additional know-how to handle pandemics. And it has been a very rich uh, learning experience for Singapore and I'm sure all cities around the world. And we can talk about that. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Minister, for the answer. Uh, we are receiving, starting to receive uh, questions. I'm starting to see that there are two main clusters of questions. COVID and non-COVID? <laughs> <laughs> somewhat, somewhat. One, one cluster surrounding our survival. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that many citizens are quite worried about that. But we will tackle the other topic first because there is a top, really top-voted question and it's uh, by Edwin Chua. Mm. It says that a key aspect of cities is that people must want to live, work and play there. But the needs of each group, uh, whether residents, workers, tourists, can be quite different. What do you see are the key tensions? And how do you mediate between these differing needs of different sectors of the society in the city? Um, I think the, the basic point of that question is that when you open up as a global city and subject yourself to external influences, and also, therefore, presence of people from all over the world. Um, some assimilate better than others. Some make an effort to integrate. Others may not, and they may end up living in their own enclave, and that is possible. We've seen that. Um, and therefore, how do the people feel confident mm -hmm. that the future is still mine, that this country and this place is still mine? And I think there are two aspects to this, or three aspects to this. And that is what the key points of my speech. We have to recognize they are not at odds. 
the concept of being a city, a state, and then a nation. As a city, I think we just need to understand um, to make a living in this globalized world as a, just one city, 730 square kilometers, we've got to be a global city. If we want abundant opportunities for our people. And so it comes with um, people all over the world, tourists and all, wanting to come here. Yeah, so it's actually a good thing, means your strategy is working. And it provides opportunities. But then how do you handle the disamenities, the discomfort that others uh, experience? Uh, and over time, different people come here, they may settle here, they may want to make this their home. So what is the process for making them integrate uh, and live harmoniously uh, together? And that's really a function of the state. The racial harmony in Singapore is still a work in progress, but we didn't come, this, we didn't do badly at all, I must say. But we didn't come this far without the, the state intervening heavily. And so policies matter. So even in this era where people can turn against foreigners and globalization, the state need to implement interventions and policies. And we have many debates, a few debates in parliament on this. Um, various programs that we need to implement to make sure that integration is possible and it's at least live side by side together um, harmoniously. But most important, and I noticed Minister, uh, Mr. George Shaw mentioned this uh, yesterday evening, most importantly is your confidence as a people. And that is the nation in us, that we are very clear who we are as Singaporeans. There's just something connect us, that if you're a foreigner, it's very hard, la. you can try. But you no, know, we live together, we know what each other is talking about, we got a secret code, you know. Um, and it goes beyond that, it's a certain soul of the nation that we all share and we know we are part of. And if we are confident of who we are, we are more likely to accept uh, what is external. Yeah. Thank you. And to move on into some of the questions that are somewhat related to our future survival, I think uh, the second question somewhat ties in with what we talked about. And, and the question is, it comes anonymously, it is, what is Singapore's key competitive advantage that will allow us to thrive and excel as a city in this modern age and probably going forward? Mm. Mm. Very profound. Yes. I'm not sure I can give the best answer, but I'll give it a step. Uh, one is going back to our, we always say we have no natural resources, not in terms of gold, silver, tin, rubber, but we do have natural endowment, which is our location. Yeah. Along the Straits of Malacca in Singapore, across that straddle across archipelagic Southeast Asia, and which in turns link up East, West, Northeast Asia, and South Asia. All major, major empires in history. Yeah. Uh, and modern economies of today. And we are just you pick a place in the world, you, if, if an alien comes to, the, comes to Earth and look at the whole map and say these are the major population centers and major modern economies and in history, which region can enjoy this flow of energy and trade and people and ideas? And I think they will pinpoint Southeast Asia. It just makes sense. Yeah, this is where the waterways are and where it connects. And then in Southeast Asia, where is the best node and somewhere around Singapore will be probably chosen. That is very valuable. So continue to build on that. 
because it has to that that position to connect east and west and different parts of Asia is not just a physical connection in terms of our geographical location, but it's also connection of the minds and our hearts. How big our heart is, how much we can absorb uh, and feel comfortable about ourselves. That I think is that two aspect, the physical and the non-intangible part of connecting different parts of the world, that's probably our, our most important competitive advantage. So when we say what defines Singaporean, we zoom into self-determination. And underneath that, I think, is that ability to connect. Thank you. We, we do have a question that is very popular right now, and it's coming from, uh, I believe, Professor Tommy Koh. Mm. And he said, the minister has given us a brilliant lecture. I want to ask him to elaborate. It's not a lecture, it's just my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy is used to giving lectures. <laughs> and he, he wants you to elaborate on a unique problem which Singapore has. We are both a global city and a country. How do we balance the competing logic of being both a global city and a country at the same time? Mm. Life is like that, full of contradictions. Um, I, in fact, my speech make that problem even more stark, is city, state, and nation. Um, so so the, the contrast is there, the contradictions is there. Um, so there is, a, there is a New York City in us. In that sense, that is the easier part because Amongst competing countries, you know, to be a global city in a globalized world, what are the sensible policies that you must implement? And it's not difficult to know what they are, right? There's so many books and so much know-how about how you tax, how you educate, how you run your infrastructure, how you uphold rule of law, how you make sure no corruption. If you do all the, how to have free trade agreements and you know, be plugged into the free trade world, and if you do all that, um, you can emerge as a globalized city like New York City. And I think through decades of hard work, we managed to. It's not easy, but I call it the relatively easier part. Then the other two parts, which is having done that, there are all kinds of contradictions. And I, and I mentioned the three big contradictions we have today, I think, is protectionism, inequality, climate change. Yeah. And to be a global city, as part of the global economy, you've got to deal with these three problems. It's, I don't think it is a modern world that's defined by right versus left anymore. These three in younger generation, in my children's generation, when they grow up, they hardly know about right versus left, except from reading history books. But what is clear and present to them are these three dilemmas, three contradictions. And the state has to play a big part, recognizing that these are big issues. Recognizing that policies, just like in the past, you try to have policies that bridge left and right. You try to create and yet distribute. And Singapore's history is defined by those struggles. I think going forward, next generation, you've got to have policies that recognize that these are the contradictions of this generation and have policies that work. And we just had a good debate in Parliament yesterday on climate change and the green economy. Uh, and there'll be more to come. But I still go back to my final point. The Jericho in us is the most important. Ultimately, without trust with each other, without the sense that we are a nation of one people, one destiny, and we have each other's back, that we can live together by not 
over pushing our limits, always give and take, sometimes take a step back, have a common space to evolve something Singaporean that we feel confident that yes, ultimately this country is still ours, then I think we can manage these contradictions better than others. Yeah. Thank you. And that, that sort of leads us to another question that is currently the top voted. So it's uh, about self-determination. It's again an anonymous question. And it says that self-determination is an important goal and value for Singaporeans. And the, the, it asks, what is the role of government going forward in helping citizens determine who we are as a people? I suppose this person is asking about national identity. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. The state plays a huge part. If the state do not implement proper policies, if we allow uh, ethnic enclaves to form in Singapore, we have no HDB policy, I think it's very hard to imagine that we can build a nation. Yeah, and we are still building. We are actually in a very early stage of nation building still. It's only 56 years. Yeah, uh, other countries take centuries. Yeah, but we are making good progress. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that the state managed to implement sometimes tough, uh, but on hindsight, very effective policies, force people to live together, give and take, go through common experiences together. You look at COVID. Um, we have our fair share of challenges and frustrations where we can improve, we ought to. But I think overall, as a people, we manage to weather through perhaps the hardest part of this pandemic, which is the Delta wave. And Delta, unlike Omicron, is more severe. Um, so it's a combination, right? How did we go through that wave and now quite stable? We can meet uh, with friends, relatives, we can go to school, we can go to work, 50% at least. Um, things are going back to normalcy. And if you look at all this, it's achieved through, one, the policies have to make sense. Whether our protocol one, two, three, whether it's uh, our vaccination exercises, our safe management measures got to make sense. And it's effective in tackling the pandemic and give uh, empower people to take actions themselves through self-tests, through self-isolation, and then with the people trusting each other, trusting what the government is advising them to do and doing the right thing. Yeah. So I think you can't run away from that. In the long term, how you build a nation, the state plays a huge role. The people must trust each other and be prepared to be un united and do the right things. And over time, as I mentioned in my speech, something magical can happen you start to feel, hey, we are Singaporeans, quite unique. Thank you. And, and I think we often underestimate how young Singapore really is, because the cities you mentioned took hundreds of years to, to build up. And we are, in a sense, uh, in a stage of nation building still. Um, I think there are a few more questions here. Yeah. It's like a teenager, right? A teenager always feels that you are very grown up. <laughs> and as you become my age, I feel I'm young. <laughs> I feel I'm too young. <laughs> Perhaps it's also a testament to our policy success that we are ranked alongside the likes of New York, London, Hong Kong, yeah. despite them being much older cities. Yeah, so always have that perspective that we may be ranked, but these are a lot of Western rankings yes. through their own, own uh, matrix. Yes. But always remember, ranking against New York, London is very different. We are city, state and nation. Yes. Uh, there is a question about from... Kai Kurushu Nagawala. He asks, 
what are the practical ways in which Singapore can become more relevant to the citizens of ASEAN, India, China, so that they view us as relevant to their aspirations without diluting our own DNA? I suppose it speaks a little bit to our multicultural society and how do we engage with these other larger countries and regions. Yeah. So the natural conditions is, uh, the, the chemicals and ingredients are there. So it's like a kitchen, all the ingredients for a great dish is there. For us, I think it's all there. Our location, our multicultural posture, our um, state policies over the years, uh, which can be improved, but manage to hold everything together, position ourselves with a unique proposition to the world and to the region. So it's all there. We have to maintain it and to reinvent it from time to time. The question points towards one big challenge going ahead, which is the US-China relations. And we are caught in the middle, so as to many countries. But we may be more so because of the great uh, economic role that we play in connecting East and West and the global world. So when the Prime Minister makes um, statements in the past, important ones, talking about we don't want to choose sides and neither does countries around the world. And this is the most important bilateral relations in the world. And if it goes south, uh, all bets are off. Everything we fight for, we will lose it. But we don't want to choose sides. We have our own principles. We do what is right for Singapore. And I think that basic attitude must be there. It's not just a, it's not just a diplomatic policy. You know? it's a, I, I read it as a statement of who we are. Right? And the fact that we appreciate both cultures, we appreciate both governance system, and I think both countries know that there's so much for them to benefit if they work together, and so much destruction and loss if they go to war. But I think the key difference is the organizing system. Yeah. And as Singapore, it's not for us to take sides, it's for us to understand that an old system like China and a new vibrant system like America, a magnet for talent, they both have their pros and cons. Yeah. One is not going to change into the other. And both governance systems is developed through history, it's part of their culture and identity. You can't make China vote one, one man, one vote, neither will US become the single party system. It's not possible. But each we look at governance system, what are two big litmus tests of its effectiveness? One, are you able to bridge all the contradictions that Professor Tomiko talked about, mentioned, and able to bridge, divide, and move forward in the right path? That's one big test. On that score, you can see that the Chinese one-party rule system seems to be more effective. The second big test is, if you have a bad government, is there a peaceful way to replace it without bloodshed? without revolution. And you look at it, even in the worst of times, the US is able to do so. Chinese dynastic changes can be bloody. Mm. So which system is best? I think it's like talking about Western versus Chinese medicine, which one is better? It depends <laughs> who is judging it and which point of history the person is judging it. So I think take that perspective. We don't take sides. We know the role Singapore can play and we hope the two countries can work together and overall have a constructive relation. Sure. 
would you say that us being a city-state makes it easier for us to engage all these great powers? Because you have been a trade negotiator for US, uh, Singapore FTA, you have worked with Singapore Tianjin, and that's a city level. Are there material differences in the way we engage with other cities, other countries? And what are the advantages of being a city-state in a situation like that? It is. I, I'm not sure. Maybe it's part of the fact that we are a city-state, so we are very exposed to different cultures and where we are. A city, not just a city-state, a city-state in Southeast Asia, yeah, along trade routes. And I think that inevitably exposes to different cultures. Singaporeans, we underestimate the strength of this insight and perspective. Yeah. I, I did an MBA in um, Switzerland, Lausanne, the most spoken language in my class of 82 people was English. The second most spoken language, language was Mandarin. Many of my classmates, they were from 28 countries. About half of them uh, speaks Mandarin. And they know how many words they know. Some say 2,000, some say I learned 10 years, I know 5,000. I never knew how many words I know. But so I feel almost a bit inadequate amongst them. You know. Then by the end of the year, I realized they may know the words, they don't know the culture. Yeah. And, uh, but when, as for us that grow up in Singapore, we are actually exposed to the culture, East and West. Yeah. And in East, we got different cultures also, you know, from different communities. That actually is a strength that we don't realize we have. So we will talk about working with, on trade negotiation, working with American negotiator, and then I didn't work on Tianjin, I worked on Guangdong uh, and Guangzhou Knowledge City, and working with my partners over in China, you find you can toggle. Mm -hmm. And that is a great strength that we have. Um, I find myself, when I use different languages, I think differently. Yeah. And when I use Mandarin, the thought process is a bit different. It's very hard to write a speech in English and then translate to Chinese. Actually, it's much better for me to just think in Chinese, write it in Chinese, and have someone better than me to correct <laughs> my, my language. Um, so you've got to toggle between that two operating systems. And the more we can do so, the better. And I think the key lies in teaching languages early. Our bilingual policy, absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. And I'm so excited now that Education has gone through a major reform in uh, language teaching. Not so much in schools or secondary school, but in preschool. Mm -hmm. That in preschool now, it's almost quite standard um, that you'll be taught two or even more languages. And that early exposure to languages is good for the kid. It fires up the neurons, mm -hmm. but more importantly, it exposes them to contrasting cultures. Thank you. I think we've been talking a lot about contradictions, holding different views within the same mind. And I think the next question from Professor Tan Ernst, it brings the conversation a little bit back to politics. And Professor Tan, he asks, is, there a need, is the need for a strong state compatible with having a strong opposition, even possibly a two-party system? Hmm. I will argue that maybe we have a two-party system already, <laughs> maybe more. Um, but I always also am realistic that we are unlike UK or we are unlike US. It's such a big polity. So between the East and West of US, someone in Alaska think very differently from someone in Massachusetts or New York City. 
Likewise, in the UK, someone way up in Scotland thinks very differently from someone living in London. And because of the great change, difference in views and perspective and aspirations, uh, and that view can shift. So you can have naturally po political parties that cater to different population segments that is vastly different. And over time, depend on the weight of the support, uh, government switches with each election. And I think this is just logical outcome. For us, between Jurong and Changi, people equally worried about cost of living, people equally worried about COVID. Uh, I think in terms of fundamental views, it may differ from person to person, but not between regions. Uh, so as a city-state, if, if Singaporeans are unhappy with one policy, the government can change. Uh, east to west, um, it, it just sweeps across the whole city. If government do a, does a good job and people are happy, and it, it just it spreads throughout the island as well. So because of that, um, I don't think the same two-party system will happen in Singapore uh, because of geography, because of the reality of what we are as a city-state. So we are now the ruling party. We can never take for granted this will be the case. Um, but I think, therefore, as ruling party, it's our job to ensure that we continue the good work of earlier generations, make sure our policies, make sure whatever we do, we are an accountable government, meaning what we do is to serve the people. And that policies must, on the whole, make sense. No policy will please everyone, but weigh the pros and cons and move in the direction that the great majority can accept and that it is for the good of the long term and maintain trust with the people. If we can do that, I think we can continue a good path. And I feel this is the role of my party. Of course, it is the great desire of people that if in a small country you need a strong state to do long-term difficult things, what's the check against you going rogue? And that's a legitimate concern. And therefore, there will always be a role for different kinds of institutions for checks and balance and ensure that the executive branch is always accountable to the people. So civil service, we are quite unlike some system where a political party takes over layers of civil servants change. Ours, BMSEC downwards, is a neutral, non-politicized civil service. A PSC, the appoint the top uh, appointments. Rule of law, upheld by a judicial system um, that does its work very seriously. CPIB, AGO, organs of state within the system or departments within the system that constantly check that the system is clean and functioning well. Uh, People can say own self, check own self, but it is a virtue. I see it always as a virtue. If own self cannot check own self, you're in big trouble. Yeah, that's just a basic prerequisite. And of course, the presence of opposition in parliament that constantly will also raise other point of views that you need to debate, you need to take it seriously. So all these add together, I think we can have a fairly effective functioning state that serves the people well. Thank you. I think we're coming up to the hour, so I'm going to just combine a couple of questions and mm. ask one last question. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of interest um, in marginalised communities, polarising nat uh, nature of the issues we're facing today and going forward. 
So as a society, as a, a possibly not just a government, but society as well, how do we take care of uh, marginalized society, members of society, whether it is the poor or, or migrant workers who are living in dormitories? So yeah. this is it. So, some of these are economics and some are social. Mm -hmm. So for the economic ones, and I think we just have to, they, they always the response is policies and programs. Yeah. So income inequality, social mobility, there's always an issue. Uh, and this has been an issue and a priority of the government since day one. And it's always unfinished business. And the more people you bring out from the poverty trap, whoever's left there, the situation looks more dire. So actually the paradox is the, sometimes the better you do, the worse the problems seem to appear because the people unable to uplift um, looks like they are stuck there and become increasingly at risk of becoming a permanent underclass. So it requires effective public programs to invest in them, to set aside resources in them, um, to make sure that we can uplift them so that even this generation we can't accomplish this, next generation make sure they live a better life than their previous generation. Likewise for migrant workers, it is about reforming industry, reinventing industry, more productive, rely less on manpower, improving the conditions of migrant workers' living conditions, I meant. But then there are also social ones, and those are difficult. Not just about policies, but also social moorings of, uh, of, the, of the society. Moorings of the society, moral moorings of the society. Um, but these are constantly evolving. Every generation think differently. And this is, these are the aspects where it's harder for government to say that we take the lead because it's not just about policy, it's about how society feels about certain things. But it's evolving and government must keep our pulse on, on the sentiments of society, especially new generations, and try to move along with the times. Thank you. Thank you so much, Minister. And thank you for this uh, very engaging session. We've covered a very broad range of topics. And you've really given us a lot of food for thought as we move forward with the next sessions of the conference. So from wherever you are, I hope that you will join me in thanking the Minister for his time today. Thank you. Thank you, JJ. Thank you. Thank you, Minister and Dr. Wu. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now come to the end of the first, first forum. On behalf of IPS, I would like to extend my sincere thanks to Minister and Dr. Wu for their time today. Thank you also to the audience for your active participation in the discussions. I hope that these are, these are conversations we will all continue having after today. Just a reminder that this forum has been recorded and will be available on this platform for two weeks. The next forum titled City as an Inclusive Space with Professor Saskia Sesson, Mr. Lim Eng Hui, and Ms. Irene Ng will take place at 11 a.m. Thank you and have a good morning.